talk about Revelation this evening. It's good. It's 1 Corinthians. That was the inside of that. I'm glad you're here, and I've got to do something at home. Those guys that put out our website have a bio of me on there, and I think they haven't changed it in 15 years. And, uh, and if my wife found out that you were saying we've only been married for 30 years or something like that, She'd say, you know, hon, I think you're not telling the truth about that. In a couple of weeks, let's see, the end of this month, it'll be 41 years. Children are all grown and married. Got eight and nine-tenths grandchildren, you know, and uh, things like that. So, been around a while. That's all right. But you know, there's celebration. Celebration in a lot of places tonight, especially in two. I know you're excited that I'm here, and at home, they're excited I'm not there. That's always a great thing with them. I really am glad to be here, and I'm glad to, to deal with this this evening. You've got a great congregation. I love that. I appreciate your ministers. We've got a few friends in the, in the audience, and uh, I don't know whether friends or enemies or people that are close to me, so they're one or the other. And I'm glad, that, I'm glad that we're here this evening, and I'm glad we can share some thoughts on this truly great book. I, I was intrigued. When, when Mike contacted me in regard to this subject, and I said, said, basically, I want you to speak on 1 Corinthians. Okay, what? You know, well, you're going to speak on 1 Corinthians. And uh, he did say, give us the main idea. Well, that's kind of challenging in and of itself. And you think about it, and we were saying that beforehand. When you look at a book of the Bible, there's generally a theme or an idea behind it all. You can go to a commentator or somebody. They always say, you know, here's the theme behind the book and so forth. But... Uh, don't always agree with him, and you look at it and think, what is it that this author, what, this writer is trying to say? What does God want us to get out of this book? And I don't know that I'd ever done that with 1 Corinthians, because we look at it kind of differently than maybe we do some of the books of the New Testament. It's a book of problems. It's a book of corrections. It's a book of Paul writing to his offspring, so to speak, that needed some instruction, some correction, not so much doctrinally, but they needed something in regard to um, their actions, their behavior, and even their teaching. So let's get to that this evening. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians means, and this is my thought, the main point. So if you want to go to sleep after this, go right ahead. Here's the main point. Keep your eye on the ball. I think that's what Paul is trying to say throughout the book. You need to keep your focus, keep your eye on on the ball. I turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Those first few verses there I think are familiar and I think they help set the stage for what he wants the people to know. He's already gotten into it and then he jumps into this and he said, and I, verse 1, chapter 2, and I, brethren, when I came to you did not come with excellence of speech. What preacher didn't try to get up and and really impress you with what he had to say. But he says, I didn't come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling and so forth, he says. But the main idea he gets to is in verses 4 and 5. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in determination, or demonstration, I mean, of the spirit and power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Keep your eye on the ball. If you back up to the last verse of chapter 1, 
And I know Paul didn't divide them that way. But you back up to the last verse of chapter 1, you'll notice that he borrows from Jeremiah 9 and verse 24 when he offers that instruction, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. That's where I get this idea. Keep your eye on the ball. Keep your focus where it needs to be. And we can look at this church in Corinth and we can recognize it's very special to Paul. Not that others weren't important to him, but the church in Corinth seems to be one that's very special. You know it because he wrote a couple of letters to them, so they had to be important to him. And they're lengthy letters. Both of them have some length to them. A lot of things to digest in each of those letters. But he was very special to Paul. His work there had been turbulent, but you know how sometimes those turbulent things are the things that cement people together so well. He spent about a year and a half working there at least at one point. He built a relationship with them, and they were in many ways like a child that he cared about, somebody that was very important to him, like his own children as he dealt with them. And so he, he had that in mind as he writes to them at this time, and I'm kind of reminded as I look at this. I'm kind of reminded that this book is, is, while it does have doctrinal concepts, is a lot less about doctrine and a lot more about practical action. So when you want to get down to some practical action, this is one of those books you look to and it says, here's what you need to correct. Here's what you need to put in place. Here's how you need to respond. Here's how you need to handle that. It has some specifics and it has some practical principles to deal with in this book. And so we'll get to that. And thinking about that, and where I came up with this thought was, the other day, actually Labor Day, I was out in, uh, one of my daughters out, out behind their house with another grandson and uh, his dad, my son, another son-in-law. I don't know why I was hanging out with sons-in-law that day, but anyway, one of my sons-in-law was pitching the ball to his eldest son, who's about 10 years old. And so I'm stepping back, and I'm standing back there in case he knocks one out there. I'll I'll pick it up for him and throw it back in. I'm standing out there. I said, now, as long as you don't throw it over here or over here, because I don't chase balls, you know. I'm too old to be going chasing the ball. But it, they were pretty nice to me. Anyway, he starts swinging. He missed a few and so forth. And I said, buddy, here's the advice. You know what it was, buddy? Keep your eye on the ball. We've all heard it, haven't we? It was told me when I was a young boy learning to play baseball as best I could. Same advice I gave to my son, standing there, standing out there watching my son. Buddy, keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. But you know what? It really is pretty good advice. Baseball, among all the sports, perhaps the one that you most have to keep your eye on the ball in baseball because the ball is just about everything in that sport. And so the message of Paul to this church with this variety of problems is really a pretty simple message. It's just kind of going through and seeing that message put into play throughout, throughout the many things that he addresses in this book. So that's where we're going to go with this in the next few minutes. We're going to look at this idea of keeping your eye on the ball. And what I tell you is this, I think, is... The truly, if not the most, it truly is a human epistle because it's really about people and where we are. And, and it gets down to dealing with people and their problems. And he says, listen, guys, you got some problems. you got some problems that need addressing. There's trouble, you know, the old song, trouble right here in River City. And so almost from the very beginning of the book, he begins with his thanksgiving and his prayers for them, and then he jumps right in. By the time you get down to the 10th verse, he's in the heart of a problem. There are divisions right here 
among you. Almost from the beginning of the book, the problems are addressed with that brief greeting, and then he notices you got troubles. He loves this congregation. He loves these people. He loves this church. He loves what they are. He, they've got so many talents. You go through the book. You recognize they've got talents, abilities. They've been blessed. There are people here. It's a very cosmopolitan, very educated, very recognizable people that are there in this city and in this place. And, and in the midst of this and all these talents and all these great things that they've got, he says, you've got some problems. And you've got some problems that need to be addressed. It's kind of like some of those popular music groups and we've seen them through the years come and go and they'll come in and they'll they'll come together and they'll make a hit or two hits and they'll do really well and the next thing you know none of the guys are together anymore girls at all they're not together anymore why because they can't get along they make great music when they're together they got talent running out their ears but they just can't get along and so there's trouble right here in the midst of this. So maybe we should call this the epistle to the 21st century. Because I think when you look at it, and when we look at a few things in a few moments that, that are in this book, when we look at some of those things, we're going to begin to recognize this sounds a whole lot like today. It sounds a whole lot like some of the issues that we're hearing and seeing and dealing with ourselves these days. So maybe it should be the epistle to the 21st century because the issues relate well to some of the same concepts that are at work even in the church, not just in our society, but even in the church. So really is, as it says here, the message is to them, and it's really an easy message to us as well. It is a message of focus. We need to keep as our eye on the ball, keep our focus. Know what you're looking at. Know what you need to see. Because it's easy to be distracted. It's easy to get lost in little things along the way. You know, the state fair is getting ready to come to town pretty quickly here. You ever go down the midways on the state fair? It's not the same kind of midway I grew up going to, but it's pretty similar to it in a lot of ways. You go down there, you've got people calling to you and people here. Ah, there are so many things to see. Walk along holding on to the grandkids. Or back when the kids were little, walk along holding on to the kids, and their heads are swinging back and forth because there are so many things. And they'll say, oh, let's stop here. I say, no, 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 we're going down here. We're going down here. And that's the way this book is addressing things because... He says there are a lot of, you're letting a lot of distractions get in your way. Uh, it's kind of like the kids loved that, that movie, that movie a few years ago, Up. If you, know the, if you don't know the movie I'm talking about, it doesn't make any sense to you, except there's a part in it where the, these dogs, and the dogs are, are trained and they're supposed to do these certain things, but then somebody would say, squirrel! And these dogs that were so focused would suddenly be off. And sometimes that's the way we are, isn't it? We start going down a way thinking we're on the right track. And then the next thing you know, off out here somewhere because we've been distracted from what we're doing. And that's kind of where he gets into this. And that way you get divided. You have all kinds of problems you're dealing with. And so in dealing with these things, he recognizes we need to watch the distractions. Watch them. Keep them from happening. And so we begin with the idea he's trying to tell them right up front. When he tells them there are divisions among you, you got problems, and we're going to deal with some of those problems. And so he, he begins to break it down for them because they've broken their focus. And the breaking their focus, and let me give you some of the things you see in the book when you go through it. 
The breaking the focus ends up, as we've already said, with divisions. There are divisions among you. You know, there are always divisions. There's always divisions. I bet when you people go home, you don't all go to the same place, do you? You know, that bed might get a little bit small after a while. I was telling a fellow a while ago, I said, you know, if you run out of place to sleep, you can come over to our house. We've got, we got several empty bedrooms now because all the kids have moved out. But every now and then some of the grandkids come over and they're spending the night, so they might be in the bed with you after a while. Well, you get them all in there, that bed's going to get full in a hurry. But you know, we divide, don't we? We associate. We've got friends that are closer than other friends. They're people that we eat with and people maybe we don't eat with. It's not anything against them. It's just that's the way we are and we operate. We have people that are closer to us than other people. That's not what he's talking about. These were divisions that were marked and clear to them. They understood. They knew who they belonged to or where they went. We can call them cliques or we can call them sects or we can call them whatever we want. They are divisions. And the reason for dividing is less important than the, just simply the fact that they were divided. He said when you start focusing on yourselves or one another or this way in some sense, you're going to end up with divisions. In fact, they are referred to as contentions. I love that word, don't you? Contentions. And I'm sure glad my wife didn't come with me tonight because I keep thinking about in Proverbs twice, 21 and in in 25, Proverbs 21 and 25, twice in the book. Solomon knew what it was to have contentious women, I think. He said it's better to dwell in the corner of a house out here on the edge of the roof hanging off with no place out of the rain than to live in the house with a contentious woman. Now, Now, don't be upset with me. I didn't write it. And I didn't really mean that about my wife, because I don't want that getting back to her. But what I'm trying to tell you is that word contentions means they were antagonistic. They weren't just simple to me, oh, yeah, you sit on your side, I'll sit on my side, that kind of thing. No, that's not what we're talking about. They were contentions. They contended with one another. They didn't like each other. They were separate in that regard. They were called contentions, meaning they're antagonistic. And so he said, when you break your focus, you start huddling your little group and thinking your little group is better than others. And it ties into the idea, then we begin to think we're smarter. Human wisdom. Human wisdom. And where they might be driving towards, I know more than you know. I'm smarter than you are. Count my degrees. You know, I've got 98.6, maybe. But... We've got, that, we've got the idea then that we are better than somebody else or just simply I'm going to attach to that kind of wisdom. Maybe we get it in our minds with that in play. Maybe we get into our minds that if they would just listen to me, they would avoid a lot of trouble. Any mothers in the group? Haven't you, haven't you thought that about your children? If they would have just listened to me, they wouldn't have had that much trouble. Well, yeah, that's true. But when we start looking at the world around us, and maybe we think a little bit about, that, about it that way. If they just listen to me, oh, I'm so much smarter than everybody else. And sometimes it happens. Sometimes we think a little bit that way. He says that's when our focus is not where it's supposed to be, when our eye is off the ball. Or we get hung up on leaders and who the leaders are, especially the personalities. 
and he talks about Cephas and, and Apollos and the divisions over these and this one and that one and, the, and so forth. We, we begin to look at leaders and personalities and whether it's their knowledge or whether it's their talent or whether it's just their celebrated, their knowable status. And, and aren't we hung up on people with knowable status that doesn't really stand for anything except knowable status? Maybe they were too. Leaders look to others to follow rather than using their brains and thinking. They just want to emulate what somebody who's recognizable has shown. It says when your eye is off the ball, you start leaning that way. And when you start getting into your own thinking rather than keeping your eye on the ball, and we're talking about pointing towards God, when you take your eye off the ball, you start allowing behaviors. In this case, you start accepting immoral behaviors. And Paul says, you've let it live among you that wouldn't even be allowed among the heathen. Now, I kind of know who I'm talking to tonight. And if you're at all like me, you would not have believed that the morality of today would be the morality of today, 25 years ago. Only 25 years ago. Not even that long ago. Who would have thought we would be where we are in terms of the legalization of certain moralities, as they would call it, or we would refer to as immoralities today? Who would have thought? Interesting article I read not too long ago talked about uh, some decline in divorce rates. Sounds like good news, didn't it? It was good news... There weren't, actually weren't as many divorces, I'm not sure it was percentages, but there weren't as many divorces because not as many people were getting married. It wasn't about good news, it was kind of bad news, so they just weren't even bothering to get married anymore. Why should I get married? Why should I deal with it? Why should I, I follow that? Accepting immoral behaviors, now he's got a specific in mind, of course, and you can look at that, and you can talk about that, and it carries over into the second Corinthian letter as well. But when our eye, our focus is off of God, we begin to say, well, maybe that's not so bad, and that's allowable, and we allow immoral behaviors that we would not have allowed if we were focused on it. Because in the game, and when your eye is on the ball, there's only certain things you can do. And that's the way it works. And let me give you one more in that regard. It's the idea of turning to human standards of law. Airing your laundry publicly is kind of what it gets down to. We go to a different standard. If we're not going to find what we want with God's, then I'm going to go over here and I'm going to find something over here that's going to deal with it in a different way. Wow. That's difficult. That's difficult. So you start... Re- reverting to human standards of law. It's like some of the Old Testament guys who would forget about God, go out there and hire somebody, some other king to help them out in war, and God would say, why would you do that? Why did you do that? When we start elevating human law as valuable and as important as it is, well, I'll tell you what, I think we're, most of us are probably in love with America in here. I hope we are. Whether we're truly citizens or not, I'm in love with America. I love living here. I even like Oklahoma, believe it or not. I thought God had a sense of humor when he landed me in Oklahoma City, in, or in Oklahoma City, yeah, in Oklahoma City in 1984. In 1978, we moved out to Minko, and you're talking about a little farm town. Some of you know where that is. Minko's a great place. But I thought the Lord had a sense of humor when he put me out there. But you know, I fell in love with it out there. I grew up in Oklahoma. 
It's been my home since 1957. I love Oklahoma. But there's a higher law in there. There's something more important than that. That's what I'm getting at. He says, when you start reverting to human standards of law to deal with somebody that you should deal with from a godly point of view, that's when your focus on God is breaking. That's when your eye is off the ball. He's talking about some things that are very specific and behaviors that he has seen in them. And then he begins to address things on a little bit different level. That breaking in, in focus and so forth... Uh, Turns down, comes down to some issues. Some things that are going on. Some things they need to address. Some things they need to recognize. Things they're dealing with in one another. He said, you're losing your grip in these things and you need to focus on some of these issues. I'm not one who, who likes to have issues that we've got to deal with this, we've got to deal with that. I like, I like central focus. And by keeping the central focus, hopefully you deal with the issues along the way. For when you turn those issues into the primary, we lose sight. And that's, in essence, what they were doing. But by keeping their focus, their eye on the ball, you deal with these issues, like building strong marriages. Well, we need that, don't we? I wonder how many marriage seminars have been put on in the last 50 years. I don't know whether they did marriage seminars much more, much beyond that. I don't know. Maybe they did. I, I wasn't aware of it. Of course, I wasn't married back then. Neither was my wife. But uh, we, as a child, I never heard about those things. But marriage seminars, oh, yeah, we just kind of expected people to be that way. And then we started having marriage seminars. And it seemed like the more marriage seminars we have, the more trouble we have with marriage. Not that the two are necessarily related. Maybe it's because we have more troubles. We have more marriage seminars. But it seemed like we're not getting across what we need to get across fully in a good way. And what it takes to build a good marriage is getting back to the center and the focus. That's just a part of it. I know that's a shortened answer to a, a great issue. But when half of all the marriages that we know about are discarded, not to mention the distortions of marriage that I was already kind of hinting at a while ago, there is a focus and commitment problem because people have to be turning away in order for those problems to exist. Keep your focus. And sometimes, thinking we've got the best focus, we end up setting arbitrary limits. Jews were good at that, as we know. Jesus addressed it a lot. Sermon on the Mount addresses some of it, and throughout his ministry, he continually dealt with some of those ideas of setting these arbitrary limits, binding on people, things that didn't necessarily need to be bound on them, or not taking it to the real principle that's involved. But here, he comes down to things like circumcision, that is, adhering to the old law, to slavery. And what about slavery? Maybe they had slaves saying they didn't have to be slaves anymore, some saying we, we should have, or some we shouldn't, and so there were arguments in that. Uh, and widows, what are we going to do with our widows? What are we going to do with our widows out there? And what can they do? And can they marry? Can they not marry? How are, they, are we going to handle that? And one of them that seemed to be one of the hot-button issues was what food you can eat. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? I, we had a men's breakfast uh, just the other day, last Saturday, I guess it was, had a men's breakfast, and I think there were five guys there, well, there were more than five guys at the breakfast, but there were five guys there that were on the keto diet. 
you know what we had at our breakfast? Things you can't eat on the keto diet. <laughs> Did I feel bad for them? No! But <laughs> all we had some day, they found things to eat. But I thought, isn't this interesting? But thankfully, none of them say, you can't eat that. But, you know, I kind of get, get a little perturbedness. And when they're sitting next to you and you said, you know, I can't eat those pancakes on my diet, I'm thinking, I don't care. <laughs> don't tell me about it. <laughs> but in all seriousness, they were drawing limits. And I know they were dealing with an issue that was deeper. And can you eat meat that's been offered to idols? Yeah, it's sold in the marketplace. You don't necessarily know where it came from. Somebody says, well, I think that was offered to such and such idol over there. I don't care. It's just something to eat. Where are you going to go eat where are you going to eat and where are you going to buy your food if it's got to be kind of sacred from beginning to end? What store can you buy that doesn't support things that you don't agree with? What restaurant are you going to go and dine if they don't do things according to what you believe everything should be done or shouldn't be done? Where are you going to, where are you going to get things and where are you going to do things? I think somewhere along the line you're going to have some good sense. I don't practice this. I don't stop and ask people, do you serve this? Do you do that? Do you buy that? You know, and I don't care how they raise their chickens. If it's fried, I'm going to eat it. I don't, I'm making fun, and I hope you understand. I know there are things that are important and some issues that are important to us. But he said, we start making arbitrary limits on whether you can be a faithful Christian or not by something like that. We've missed it. Our focus is off. And then he got to one that really strikes home. He talked about worship disruptions and how they conduct their worship. And while he doesn't go into detail of how a service is conducted here, he does talk about some principles and, and conducting ourselves properly in that way. And he's dealing with there were people that were taking charge that shouldn't be taking charge, especially when he talked about the women's role. And we spent a lot of time with that gender roles, head coverings, and the food, and, and bringing food and eating in a certain way. You know, it's kind of hard to get people's attention when you got food in front of them. And sometimes people are, are, are really piggy. I know you guys don't have this problem here. But when we have a church dinner, and we had a picnic on, on Monday, Labor Day, we had a picnic and we ate fattening food. It was terrible. But uh, there are always those people that want to make sure they get at the front of the line as if there's not going to be any food. You don't have those here. I know that. It's always fine. I don't care. They can run to the front of the line. It's good for, good for them. They're hungry. Go get them and everything. But what if that we were trying to conduct worship in the midst of people running to the front of the line? That's tough. And that's what brings out some of Paul's instruction in this regard. You guys are missing the point. Quit worrying about who's going to get something to eat first and making sure you don't let the, somebody over here have some of that to eat. We're not here for that. You need to eat, eat at home if that's a problem. But come down here. This is about having the Lord's Supper. This is about worshiping God. You can address those issues there. It gets down to some of that because it's disrupting our ability to do what we really need to do here. And then the ego of having something that somebody else doesn't have. We don't deal with that so much here in the way that they were. It's as well, 
I've got this gift, you've got that gift, my gift's more important than your gift, but we still deal with that. So-and-so is a little more important than somebody else. I had a lady say to me a few years ago, few years ago, shortly after we had built the uh, Southern Ridge Church building, and we had a, some new people coming and checking us out, and a few people placing membership. It was a great, great time, you know, when you're opening new doors, and that was, that was a really neat time. And one of the ladies said to me, said, we, got, we sure got a lot of new people coming in here. And I said, yeah, we do. And she said, well, we need to remember, and I want everybody to know, I'm one of the originals. <laughs> and I, I, I said, oh, Really? And I said, and that makes a difference? Well, sure, I know the way around better than other people do. I said, and that makes a difference. And she said, I'm not talking to you anymore. Okay, that's enough about that. But we, we do sometimes get a little puffed up in ourselves. Well, look, what, look at what I've got. Look at what I do. I give more than somebody else. I teach more than somebody else. I, I prayed more than somebody else. Whatever it is, sometimes we get hung up on my doing is better than somebody else. And they said, our, our focus is off. We're missing it. We're not going to hit the ball. When we're looking that way, that's what he's saying. Let me give you one more because he deals with, he really does with a couple more, but let me give you one more. It's about knowing the unknown. Because we're talking about the resurrection. Yes, Jesus raised from the dead. That's the testimony. Many of these people would never have seen that. But what it, what it centers on is really that aspect of faith in that they had lost trust in what they could not see. Their focus of faith was off. And they had lost trust in what they could not see. Kind of like the writer of Hebrews reminds us, 11.1, faith is what? Substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. We're expected to have faith there, aren't we? Yeah. And so... Paul talks about their need to focus in some of these issues and things that they are, they are dealing with here and how to, how to think about them, how to confront them, and how to address them. So there is a need to focus in these particular areas and, and uh, knowing the unknown even. And so we come back to this, and there's my grandson out there. And every time he would swing the bat and I thought, Another Russ Dyer has been born. He would swing the bat, and you know what he would do? Close his eyes. Sure. It's what little, little kids do almost by nature. Swing the bat, or the ball's coming. I'm going to catch it. Yeah. No. What they have to learn is your actions follow where your eyes go. When I used to coach baseball years ago, little boys baseball, I wasn't in the major leagues, I want you to know. I was probably one of the worst baseball players there ever was, but uh, I'd help coach teams when my son was young and everything. And I, the one thing that somebody pressed on me was, your hand will go where your eye looks. When you're throwing a ball, always look where you're, you want the ball to go. And isn't that true spiritually? took me a while to figure that out because you watch little kids throw a ball, the head goes back over here and the arms over here. Say, what? No, wait a minute. Look where you want the ball to go. And that's what we're talking about in this focus. 
Paul's dealing with a church that he loves. He's dealing with situations, people who are talented. You know, in the, when you get into the second epistle and he, he talks about their, their giving, he said, I want you to abound. You abound in so many things. You've been so blessed. I want you to abound in this as well. And I think that's really the heart of what he is getting at in this. You need to think. You need to think carefully. You think, need to think strongly in this because when you're going into this, sometimes our focus kind of gets off. We get a little distracted. We start going in one direction or another, and we start separating, we start bickering, we start fighting. And it's all because we've let our focus, our eyes wander, and we've forgotten about God. I'm reminded of the Israelites as they were there by the Red Sea. And you think about they knew Pharaoh's army was coming. They knew he was coming. If nothing else, they could see the dust and, the, and the, uh, the, the wind stirring the dirt into the air. And they probably had plenty of people out there. When you're talking about probably a million people or so moving across there, some are saying, hey, there's somebody back here following us. And they started worrying. Basically, Moses is, why are you worried? Quit worrying. Then he goes to the Lord, and the Lord says, basically, why are, you, why are you turning to me? Moses had already said, stand still. Basically, he's saying, keep your focus and see the salvation of God. The Lord says, okay, keep moving. And across the sea they went. Our tendency is that when we think there's a problem, to look back and address the problem. I think Paul is saying, no, you keep your focus where you need to go. Let me tell you about a couple that came to see me a few years ago. Uh, you wouldn't know them, uh, but they came in to, to see me, and I knew they were having troubles, and I arranged to get them, finally talk to one, talk to the other, finally get them in, and we, we sit down together, and I'm no marriage counselor, and I, I despise counseling, <laughs> but you know, we all do, I think, but we, we want to help people. They came in, and you know what they want to do? They wanted to point out all the bad things that one or the other was doing. And I said, let's stop. I said, let's start with the good things you got. Well, they had two beautiful children. It's great. At the time, they had like 15 years of marriage. They had a house they were paying for, two cars, you know began to go through the list. You've got all these good things. I said, I want you to, and I sent them away, I said, I want you to, I want you to come back, and we set an appointment a couple of days later, I want you to come back, and we're going to sit, and I want you to talk about all the best things you can find in the other person. And we did, and we came back together. And before we left, I said, I want you to each give me your view of where you're going. Where are you going? And so when they came back, it was amazing that they had, I guess they'd even talked about it a little bit while they're apart. And they hadn't even thought about where they were going or what's coming next. But as they sat down and talked about it, they began to think, they began to plan, they began to look forward, they began to work on things together. And instead of separating and despising one another, 
They grew closer together than ever. As far as I know, I haven't seen them in, in nearly 20 years, but as far as I know, they're still just trucking along about as well as most of us do day by day. I don't know that we have to have the future lined out. I don't know that we have to call our shots and we're going to hit the home run to that field. We don't have to pull that Babe Ruth business. But we can step up to the plate with a full belief we're going to hit the ball and do the best we can with it. I think that's what Paul is trying to tell them here. So the conclusion, the conclusionary matters. So when I say conclusion, don't get excited. I know, I know Marty told me, he said, nobody would be upset if I, if I quit early. You know, why, why do people tell me that? They tell me that all the time. You know, I was in Durant a couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, I was in Durant. And Logan Cates, a good friend, one of the preachers down there, and I came in, he said, now, Rush, you don't have to fill the whole time. I said, what are you saying? You don't have to fill the whole time. But you know what happens on Sunday morning? On Sunday morning, I sit on a pew just about like where Mike's sitting here, and I've, my wife sits next to me and a couple of three or four of the grandkids and, uh, and, and so forth sit there. And uh, recently, one of, the, one of the grandsons was sitting right next to me, and he, he looks up to me just before the lesson. He says, now, Pop, Pop, is this going to be a long one or a short one? And when I figured out later, he wanted to know whether to take a nap or he could sit through this one or not. And all, but I don't know how many times my wife has looked at me and, and she said, said, now, hon, we're going to go eat afterwards, so don't take too long. <laughs> it's not too long. So when I say conclusion, it means let's get to the heart of this at the end. Where is our focus? Where's our focus? Where are we focusing these days? I think we look at it, we see evidence of where, where we're looking. And here, here it is. Uh, look at the evidence. We can see in the church today divisions uh, and undressed differences. I think we're afraid to talk about things as much as we used to. I mean, I'm not in the... the in the mode of saying we need to get into arguments and debates uh, like may have been had so, a generation or so ago that we've got to have public arguments about these things or that I want to stand and fight something out but maybe that's the way to do it sometimes. sometimes you just need to put the gloves on and go to bat with it I've sat with groups of people sometimes I said I've just thrown something in there just to stir the discussion a little bit I think it's kind of good for us, makes us think a little bit. I had a friend not long ago who used to be an elder in the church there, and he said, he said Russ, I know you'd probably like to get rid of me if you could. I forgot to jump ahead here. But uh, you'd like to get rid of me. I said, no, sir. You and I may not agree on, a lot of, uh, on several issues, but I need you. You sharpen me, and hopefully I sharpen you. You make me have to work and think a little harder than I would have with somebody just says, oh, yeah, you're right all the time. There are people that come out the door every, every service. There are people that come out the door, and they want to pat me or shake my hand and say, That's a, that was a wonderful sermon. I don't believe it for anything. No, I appreciate they mean well, and maybe there were some good things. But it's that person that comes out and says, you know, I'm not sure I agreed with you about this. I'll make you sharper, make you work a little harder. And I could say more about that, but I've already said too much. My time's running out very quickly. But as we look at the evidence, division, undressed, unaddressed differences, whether they're large or whether they're small, that's evidence that we are not focusing where we need to focus. 
We spend more time thinking about convenience. You know, can we meet at the right time? And, you know, should we do this? Should we not do that? Convenience and comfort. We're, I think we, in generally, are a little bit like baby birds. We want the nest built and the food brought to us. Convenience and comfort is when our focus is off. Is there something wrong with uh, the issue? Is there something wrong with convenience and comfort? No, but when that's our driving motivation and determining factor. Thirdly, feelings. I'm not going to break out in song, but feelings. We want, we want, and I'm speaking generally, we want to be made to feel good about ourselves, to be made to be, feel happy, to feel accepted, and feel important in all things. Oh, man, I get so tired of that. I hope that meant I had five minutes, because I've got 12 minutes worth of stuff. <laughs> not really. We'll be done here in just a minute. Feelings. Are feelings important? Absolutely. Especially when they're mine. No, we all have them. We all want things certain. We have feelings. We have feelings that get hurt. And we have feelings that feel good. We want to be made to feel good. Is there something wrong with that? No. Is there something wrong with being wanting to be made happy? No. But put yourself into it. I had a story to go with that, but I won't tell it. A young lady used to attend services, and she would run in and run out. And told somebody later, says, they're just not very friendly to me there, so I'm going to go someplace else. I said, well, you know, if you'd give us a chance to actually meet you, go up and greet somebody, talk to somebody, it might happen. Feelings become an evidence that we're really not looking and keeping our eye on the ball, focusing and keeping our eye on the ball. And then let me give you one more here, is that idea we focus on truly being accepted. By that, I mean, you've got to take me as I am. What is it they, they say? Uh, men marry women um, hoping or believing they will not change, and they always do. Women marry men hoping they will change, and they don't. All we do, we really do, but we have to make the genuine effort. Make the genuine effort. You want to be accepted? Don't just walk in and say, here's what I am. You've got to take me as I am. Oh, no, I don't. No, I don't at all. I don't have to take you as you are. We may sing just as I am, but you read the rest of it. We still need the blood of Christ to make us worthwhile. So this is a call. This book is a call to realign our focus on God and the message that is in Him through or from Him in Jesus Christ. I don't mean that a lot of little things need to be ignored by any means or other things that feelings or other things need to be ignored. That's not it. I think about the words of Jesus in Matthew 23 and, and verse 23 when He said, These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. I think in the time in which we live and applying the, the teaching of this principle to us, it means you've got to go all the way. You've got to keep your focus and you've got to make sure you know what you're doing all the way down the road in these things. So, leave it at this. Here it is. You were hoping we'd get to this point. Here it is. I think A, if not the main lesson of 1 Corinthians, is to keep your focus on that center that is God. 
or in more colloquial language, in other words, keep your eye on the ball. We could talk about all the issues they had, and I've hit on some of them throughout this, and it talks about those things, but I think it really comes back to what is Paul saying? Find that center, keep your focus, keep your eye on the ball, and then you can deal, if you're doing that, you can deal with these issues all the way down the way. I was thinking about that batter, and he kept telling the coach, I'm having an awful hard time hitting a curve. The coach said, why are you having trouble hitting the curve? He said, because the ball is never where I think it's going to be. He said, I swing where I think it's going to be, and it's not there. The coach said, hmm, maybe you should stop think about, thinking about where it's going to be and start looking where it is. I think that's pretty good advice, don't you? Stop thinking where you think it ought to be and start pointing, focusing on exactly where it is. I appreciate you letting me come and share a few thoughts with you this evening. You know, we could spend a long time in this book. I'll tell you very quickly, because uh, uh, I thought about this, and I thought, you know, we're, I need to get some resource in this. took a class in college back many, many years ago from Jimmy Allen on 1 Corinthians. One of my favorite classes in college was Jimmy Allen teaching 1 Corinthians. He was a great classroom teacher. And... I went over to my shelf, and there on my shelf is a book that's been wet at least twice. It was in the Drexel building when it burned in the f smoke and fire and water and everything. It was in there, and then it was in my present office when a pipe burst in the ceiling and flooded my office, and the book got wet. But, you know, I opened it up, and there were still a lot of good things in it. I didn't use any of them for this lesson, but I thought it made me think about keeping our focus where it needs to be, like the teachers tried to teach us all the way school. Anyway, keep your eye on the ball, and that's a, that's a great thing. I appreciate it very much. Let's have a prayer as, we, as I conclude. Father and God, again, you've given us so much to think about, so much to look to. We thank you for the writing that Paul has given us here. We thank you for your inspiration that brought it to be. We're thankful that we have the opportunity to look at it. Help us, Father, to see the principle in action. Help us to understand what we can do and how we can use it in our lives this day and every day. And Father, when our when our attention and our focus is not where it should be, help us to see, help us to know, and help us to correct and have our eyes ever on you and that we may ever be in the game. And it is in Jesus we pray. Amen.